But we do know, and that is where God was very good to us. He gave us a massive book of history that's written in the rocks, in the soils, and in the history of the human beings. We can go back and look what happened in history and then learn from that. This is Dr. Gideon Grunewald. My name is just purely Um Gideon. Everybody knows me as Um Gideon. Um Gideon it is. He is the uncle with the big picture. And when I say big... As a geologist, I studied the entire country of South Africa. I've actually walked from Freyheit in Natal to East London and from East London to Grafenet and from Grafenet to Colesburg, measuring mountains in 10 centimeter intervals and recording the water zones. Uh, I've also included in my geological studies paleontology, which is then the study of life since around about 3.8 billion years ago, so 3,800 million years ago to today, looking at drought cycles on Earth, the availability of water, and then the effect of the ecosystem running out of water. What does it do to the ecosystems? This podcast is brought to you by Jojo, a proud supporter of South Africa's water activists and a proud supplier of water solutions for a better quality of life. By protecting our most precious resource, Jojo's quality products help to safeguard the well-being of people, communities and the environment and the people working tirelessly to protect it. You're listening to For Water For Life, the podcast that tells extraordinary stories of ordinary people and water. They've made it their mission to preserve, purify and protect the water supply where we live in water-scarce and unequal South Africa. I'm Gugule Tumplomo. And I'm Segwitlane Pamudi. Umgideon is based in Grafrenet in the Eastern Cape, a province in the grip of a severe drought. The fourth oldest town in South Africa was established as a trading post in the Karoo an arid semi-desert where dinosaurs once roamed. Um Gideon is often in the news for his work finding millions of litres of fresh, drinkable water for communities in drought-stricken parts of the country. He finds the water for the South African charity and disaster relief organisation Gift of the Givers. In the past three years, they've drilled 1,800 boreholes. But we find Um Gideon in the dead of night. So what I do is I use that basis of geological knowledge that I've got, which is then my doctorate degree. And on the grounds of that information, I use Google technology now to fly away 78 kilometers above the Earth at 1 o'clock at night. So between 1 and 4 at night, I then, if somebody asks me to cite a borehole for them, like gift of the givers or a school or a community, I would then plot that point on Google. And then I will fly away 78 kilometers above the Earth and then look at the Earth and see if I can see any linear feature, either tree lines, uh, rock lines, grass lines, but any linear feature. And then I, I go into meditation and I ask God to reveal to me which of these linear features will give us fresh water uh, that will be drinkable for human beings. I then put a GPS mark where a road crosses that line close to where 
the problem is. I then take a magnetometer. I do very detailed geomagnetic surveys across the line to confirm that there is, in fact, a geological feature. So I asked Umkhidion how that actually works, the straight lines. I actually was about to ask. So in geology, the word karoo only means the group of rocks that was deposited during the time around about 300 million years ago to about 150 million years ago. Luckily, the karoo was intruded with volcanoes and we have a rock called a dolerite. And these dolerites are magma that came up from deep inside the earth, cooled down inside the earth. And after erosion of South Africa, we now find lines on the earth where these molten rocks has turned into a rock called a dolerite. And these rocks, because when the rock melts, cooled down, all the minerals in the rock turn towards the magnetic north of the time. And in that way, I can incite my borals. Okay, okay, slow down. I need to ask a sort of basic question. <laughs> yeah, how does the water get into the rock, yeah? Mm-hmm. How it collects is when it rains, we have two different rock units, what we in geohydrology call aquifers. Aquifer is a very sort of a big word, just meaning a rock or a soil group that can contain water. So that's an aquifer. Now we have primary aquifers. Those are mostly associated with rivers and wetlands where as soon as it rains, the water immediately gets caught up within the sand or within the the unit of rock. That is the primary source or storage of rainwater. And then once the water is in the primary aquifer, it then seeps down into the fractures and cracks in the lower lying rock And these are called secondary aquifers. And they can be either rocks like sandstone or dolomite with an N, dolomite, that can contain free water. So if you drill into that rock, the water spouts out into your borehole out of the rock. The rock actually keeps the water in. So in these, we need fractures to work with. And that is where my speciality comes in, is to find these fractures. And they contain billions and billions of liters of fresh water from the Valley of Desolation in the Kamdebu Park, you can see Khrafrenet in the adjoining township Masisake. They lie in a giant hollow built into a bend of a river. The famous church steeples are dwarfed by the mountains that loom like an enormous cathedral above the town. For miles, animal carcasses and windmills mark the flat felt and Karukopis hills forged from the lava that spewed from the ancient volcanoes. Dust flies as a convoy of cars heads down the road. It's only morning, but the sun beats down mercilessly on Umkhedion and the gift of the giver's borehole team. The dam here is empty. The fish are rotting. Hrafreinet is in the grip of a drought. So a drought is a time when all the users are then getting less and less and it gives time for the producers or the plants to recover again because we overutilize and then the drought actually gets rid of the users, the things that eat the plants, and then the plants can recover and then the ecosystem recovers when the rain comes back again. And the availability of drinking water is the quickest way of getting rid of living things, plants, animals, humans. If you as a human being run out of drinking water, you've got only 24 hours to live. 
Children wave and shout at the convoy. Cars hoot as they pass. Everyone knows that the gift of the givers has come to find water, a resource as precious as life. So the first thing I need to do when I get on site is to make sure that the linear feature I'm seeing is in fact a possible zone that will give water or can give water. And what one must remember is rocks don't actually give water. The rocks contains water, but they give water off very, very reluctantly. You need a, an opening in the rock that can actually provide water to the borer. And so I then discover these things using the geomagnetic field of the Earth, uh, which is very high-powered science. And then by using that, I then start with a drilling Umgideon calls it the worst drought in a thousand years. Without this new borehole, the community would not have easy access to drinking water or be able to go to school or to work. But unless it rains, the groundwater won't be revived and even boreholes will no longer help. In the past year alone, he has travelled 170,000 kilometres in his bucky with his team, drilling over 300 boreholes. This, he says, is part of a higher calling. About five years ago, I lost my wife. She unfortunately passed away. And in the time that I was sort of in terrible sort of lows, I met a prophet from Lesotho, a Basotho speaker. And for some reason, four days before my wife died, he gave me sort of a a little bit of of hope. He said, God is probably not going to let your wife live because she's very, very ill. But what I see, what he told me is he see that somebody is going to call me and I'm going to get a small group of people and get involved with a small group of people. And I will be finding water for for children. My prayer for the youngsters in South Africa is that there will be more and more youngsters involved in geohydrology, geology, paleontology, archaeology, so that I can be able and my generation can be able to transfer as quickly as possible as much information as we can before God takes us home. Children today, they don't even understand that the river is important. When they cross the bridge, they cross the bridge on top of the sand. No water there in the river. But they go to bathroom, to the kitchen, they still find water to drink, to bath, to be clean. But the children cannot connect that. This water from the tap comes from the river. They think the house is already having water. It's a 14-hour drive from the small town with its stone church and circling a black eagle to the Vembe district of Limbobo. Yeah, we visited Makazi Bompateleni. Makazi Bompateleni is an indigenous knowledge keeper, traditional healer, and environmental activist who fights to save sacred natural spaces in Venda, where she lives. She and her organization, Zomola Mopo, also run education programs because they believe young people have been cut off from traditional ways of knowing. When they go to the river, to the shop, they find this bottle of water, spring water, and they drink. But they don't even know the connection that this water comes from the soil where the river is flowing on top of the soil. Disconnect people from their normal, normally 
the real life. Madi, water for us is called Madi. Madi is the bowel of indigenous forest. It's the bowel of everything which lives. And it's the bowel of things, everything which we think it does not live, like stone. We think stone does not live according to our eyes. Even other people have done their scientific research and said the stone have life. But normal life is that stone is just a dry thing. Why Mopo created a rain to fall that it wetened the stone? Why Mopo created trees that they cover the stone? Like for us, we... We, we feel so painful. Now I am in the organization called Zomala Mupo, the voice of Mupo. Mupo in Venda Cosmology refers to the interconnected web of all natural creation. And Zomola Mupo means the voice of all creation. Young people need to understand the importance of Mupo in order to do the work of protecting the water, says Makaz. Madi is very important for everything. That's why people always say water is life. There's no life without water. We vendor people, we cannot live without water. And that's why today we are struggling a lot because we are forced to, to use the water which is not coming to us in a normal way. We are losing the rivers. We vendor people, we use muddy water for our spiritual connection. We cannot do our prayers without muddy. We'll be hearing more about the incredible work of Tsumolamopo later in the series. But now we go back to Khrafrenet in the Eastern Cape. Coming up, Um Khidion gives us the history of the world in just a few minutes. The global warming we're experiencing at the moment is a global event that happened all the time through the millions of years. We had global warming and global cooling events. And and one of the global warming events killed off 98% of life about 252 million years ago. We know of several of these mass extinctions associated with these global warming events. Every 220 years, we have a massive drought, followed by this immense flooding where we just have rivers stopping themselves and water just goes everywhere. And that happened in my lifetime in 1988. This is a normal cycle because our sun moves in a non-circular motion around another big sun. And because of the 220-year intervals of these cycles being where the Earth is closer to the sun than normal, where we are now, these 220-year big, big, big cycles are causing these very severe changes in our climate. So it's all to do with the total change in the ecosystems. And, you know, South Africa is in a drought cycle, but Australia was burning last year. France was burning last year. Spain was burning last year. California was burning last year. So even New Zealand was burning last year. So the, the, the warming cycle is not only in South Africa, it's the whole of Southern Africa that's in trouble. 
Umkhidion then applies these 220-year cycles to key moments in South Africa's history. And because it's 220 years, like the previous one in 1814 to 1820, Chaka Zulu Empire crashed. The whole Chaka Zulu Empire crashed because they didn't have any water in KwaZulu-Natal. So the empire had to send its MPs into the free state. It's all the Difakwani in Sisutu, which means a time of big killings, you know. So it was all about water. And so the cards went to all the way up to Kraksdorp and up into the Ventersdorp, Luxembourg area. And there he found that the Twanas were very clever. They just climbed down these caves into the Dolomites where there's millions and millions of liters of water available. And he then deserted from his work for Shaka Zulu and started the Ndebele peoples by using that availability of water there. In multiples of 220 years, Umkhidion, who stresses that he isn't an archaeologist but uses archaeological studies to reach his conclusions, takes us back 880 years. In short, what we discovered in South Africa is there was a civilization that lived between Mashadudorp and up in Kraskop. The ruins of a city seven times the size of Johannesburg uh, existed about 880 years ago in that region. Now, one must also remember there's Dolomite there, so it takes a very long time for a dry cycle to actually have an effect on that region because there's so much groundwater that people can survive very, very big droughts by using the groundwater on that escarpment. But eventually, the groundwater table will go too far down. So that was 880 years ago. Now, 660 years ago, we have some evidence that we had a civilization close to Mapungutwe, that's where the Sashi River and the Limpopo comes together on the border with Zimbabwe, Botswana and South Africa. And at Mapungutwe we have evidence of a civilization that knew how to smelt gold from rocks. And so very, very, very advanced chemists that actually lived in that society, they made the most beautiful golden rhino animals that we discovered in, in, in some of the excavations. But what we discover as well is all all the clay pots are empty. There's no food whatsoever left in these pots. And the civilization, the only thing we could think is that the king and the royal family had to go down the mountain to go and fetch water somewhere, and they were then slaughtered or killed by another tribe or whatever. You know, it, it can be that the drought just lasted so long that they eventually just perished. And what happened 440 years ago? What we also know is for 40 years ago, we have the Zimbabwe ruins dated around about that time when we had a massive and very, very advanced uh, civilization where people were trading with the Arabian countries from Zimbabwe and they built these massive sort of castles, if you want to, forts and uh, military places where they were safe. But eventually we also see evidence of people running out of drinking water and the civilization fell apart and then 200 20 years ago, we have Shaka Zulu civilization. What is interesting to me as an Afrikaans speaker is that my ancestry started in Cape Town and in 1824-28, they decided that it's too dry, the Berg River hasn't got any water, they couldn't farm, the drought was too severe, and they started moving north and that actually started the Great Trek.
during the Boer War in 1900, the Orange River was in such a flood that the British couldn't get to the Afrikaners. So, uh, you know, you can you can look at both sides. You have the droughts, and then you have the floods. And you have to also look at what happens during the flood times to understand the balance. Another important number that Um Gideon believes we should be paying attention to is the number 40. Yeah, I think, first of all, what we need to understand is the human race history is repeating itself in 40-year cycles. So a human being starts getting very active in the economy when he's about 20 years old and he retires at 60. So 40 years are the normal sort of generation cycles that we look at. So the British Empire sort of ruled in South Africa for about 40 years, then apartheid ruled for about 40 years, Hitler only survived 40 years. So you can go back in history, all these major, major civilizations, the only area where people and, and systems survive for longer than that is in the Eastern belief systems of the Chinese and the people that, that live within systems of sort of dynasties where people think thousand years ahead. Which brings us back to Grafrenet and the drilling for boreholes. So in South Africa, if we talk groundwater, we have to think in terms of at least a thousand years because what I can see in my groundwater studies is I can clearly see a thousand year drought happening because the groundwater table is dropping so quickly now. And remember that these drought cycles go exponential at the end of the cycle. So the end of a drought cycle is much worse than the drought itself. So in the next two to three years, we might see some really, really sad pictures in when just before the rain comes. And then, unfortunately, the drought will be followed by a massive flood. So that is the sad part of this whole story. Here's why the numbers are important. Now, what I see in terms of management, first of all, we need to read history. We need to see what happened in the past over the southern African region. Most people only worry about the 40 years that they're on this. They don't regard the next generation, especially if they're minors or they short-term thinkers. Then they, they don't think what's going to happen in 200 years in Pubalanga if we now start fracking and we take all the water away. I think we have a unique place to stay. But honestly, we need to start looking after it and we need to understand the way that these drought cycles are working and plan for them. And then we need forward thinkers. We need people who can see forward, people who can plan so that we don't have towns growing into wetlands, that we don't have mines where there are really dangerous effects on wetlands. And speaking of wetlands and aquifers, this is Nicola Fulyun. I live on a small farm just outside Hopefield, which is about 37 kilometers from Langebaan. The whole of the West Coast is a semi-arid region, so it's a very water-scarce region. Over the past 25 years, it's boomed, and we have the Langebaan Lagoon, which is like a jewel and it's an incredibly popular place to go for holidaymakers to such an extent that Langebaan is what we call the cash cow of the West Coast. Nicola thought she lived in paradise, but then a phosphate mine received a license to operate. 
one of our biggest concerns is that the chemicals that are used traditionally in phosphate mining is very harmful to the environment. The mining site is right on top of the Eelandsfontein Aquifer, which is the aquifer that feeds the Longabon Lagoon. But what happens next is another extraordinary story for another episode. Right now, I'm still trying to absorb everything Umkhidion has told us. I'm Sekwetlane Pamudi. And I'm Gugulet Mklungo. Thank you for listening to this episode of For Water for Life. All our podcasts are available at jojo.co.za. The series was made possible because of Jojo, For Water for Life. Find us on social media at For Water for Life and share your water stories using the hashtag Listen to the Water. Because if you do, it can change your life. From the Jojo family to yours, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of For Water for Life. Whether you're looking for top quality storage tanks, water filters or other water solutions, Jojo has the product ideal for you. Discover our range at jojo.co.za and find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest product news and water-related content. Thank you.